Good news, low-carb ketogenic real food fans. A real good foods company is now in all U.S. Walmart stores. They have enchiladas, poppers, cauliflower crust pizzas, mini pizza bites, and the chicken crust pizzas in 3,500 Walmart stores. Real Good Foods pizzas are grain-free, gluten-free, and of course, low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic. This is real food, and now it's available at your local Walmart. Get exclusive offers from Real Good Foods by texting RGF to 474747. And be sure to visit realgoodfoods.com to learn more about Real Good Foods' ketogenic line of products. Real Good Foods. Living La Vida low-carb, talking about a low-carb diet, uh-huh. getting your body healthy, and ain't no doubt about it, yeah, it's really about ketosis, a ketogenic life, yeah, a real-time indicator for ketosis called ketonics, it messes your breath for ketones, are you burning fat, uh-huh. it's the first of its kind, all my ketonians, where you at, hey, I'm just here to let you know, wanna look and feel incredible, we live in La Vida low-carb, get your body healthy and live long, hey. Keep my fats high, high, and my carbs low. Need my glucose down right now, pronto. Check my ketones, look at the stats, yo. With ketonics, now I'm in the burning fat zone. Ketonics, we burning fat, yeah, we on it, yeah, yeah. With ketonics, I'm burning fat and I'm on it, yeah, yeah. Living La Vida low carb, I do this every day. If you want to burn that fat, it ain't no other way, yeah. Go to ketonics.co. And for my international followers, it's ketonics.com. The information and opinions provided here are for educational purposes only and are not intended to provide individual medical advice. Material conversations and statements found herein are not intended as and does not substitute for a personalized doctor-patient relationship. It's time for Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole, featuring veteran health podcaster Jimmy Moore and functional medicine practitioner Dr. Will Cole. They're here every Thursday answering your questions about low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diets. Now, it's time to drop some keto knowledge on Keto Talk. Keto Talk. Here's Jimmy and Will. Hey, hey guys. We're back here on episode 146 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. KetoTalk.com is our website. And what do we do here? We talk about low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat, ketogenic diets through the prism of a real food template. And we join you every Thursday. I hope you enjoy the podcast. We enjoy doing this show with you and answering your questions all about ketogenic diets. My name's Jimmy Moore, international best-selling author of Keto Clarity. And my latest book is called Real Food Keto. And I am joined in the studio here with Dr. Will Cole. He's a functional medicine practitioner out of Pittsburgh. He's also an international bestselling author of the book called Ketotarian, drwillcole.com. What's up, Will? What's up, Jimmy? How's your week going? My week's going good. I'm sitting here by my red light therapy, by the way. I thought, hey, I'm going to do some podcasting with red light on my legs while I'm talking. Great idea. Yes. I was like, okay, it it makes a little bit of like a kind of noise. So hopefully it doesn't show up on the audio too much. But I'm like trying to get more and more into non-diet things that I can do to improve my health. That's great. You're making it a full spectrum picture of wellness. It's a great thing. Trying to and trying to communicate to that to my people, because uh, a lot of people, they obsess about the diet. And when you're brand new to all of this, that's the obvious first step. 
But once you've done this a while and once you kind of go down the rabbit hole of, hmm, what else can I do? Can I add in adaptogens like we talked about a few few weeks back? Okay, done that. All right, what else can I do? So you're constantly yeah. fine-tuning. Do you find yourself doing that, that the more you learn, the more you just realize you've got a whole lot more to learn? Oh, certainly. It's, and it's, Wellness is an ever-expanding sphere of technology and tools that we can implement into our lives. So, And I've been... It's funny because I grew up in a household that was interested in wellness like way back in the 80s and 90s, like before it was cool and, you know, trending and in, in, in pop culture. So I grew up doing some weird things as a kid. And like it's now like today people it's more mainstream, way more mainstream and people are into the wellness stuff. And it's I, I'm excited that more and more people are getting involved with this way of of living. Well, and the technology is there. Why aren't you using it if it's there? Um, I realize finances keeps people from having a juve light like I have next to my leg right now, but, but there's, uh, lots of things that you can do that don't cost a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to talk about something exciting that's happening for one, Dr. Will Cole, uh, and we've known about it. Uh, you told me about it a few months back that this was in the works. Well, it's now finally coming to fruition. You want to talk about your brand new podcast, not called Keto Talk? <laughs> let me just say first of all i'm not leaving keto talk we're still gonna oh, do man. this every week you can't get rid of me um but in addition to seeing patients during the week and to uh, and in addition to keto talk i am uh, starting a new podcast launching this may uh it's just goop which is gwyneth paltrow's wellness a company it's their first spinoff of the goop podcast which her and, uh, and elise the chief content officer at Goop uh, host it together. Uh, it's it's called Goop Fellas, a play on Goodfellas. It's going to be sort of the, this me uh, and Seamus Mullen, who's a world renowned chef and a friend of mine. Um, we're going to talk and kind of bring sort of a guy perspective to wellness and talk about life transformation and, and wellness. And we're, we're interviewing some really cool people um, about their, their life transformation. And it could be wellness, it could be financial, it could be just game changers in the industries of food and wellness and, and, and Hollywood and that kind of stuff. So it's, I'm really excited about it. It's a different format than keto talk. Um, so it's definitely outside of my comfort zone. Um, <laughs> but it's really cool connecting with people and, uh, I'm excited for goop fellas to come out. So you can subscribe now you can go to iTunes and Apple podcasts and all those places and subscribe. The first episode comes out in mid May. And there's a trailer up now, you guys. I posted it on social media this past week. And yeah, you and and uh, how do you say his name? Seamus? Seamus, like the Irish name yeah, yeah. of Seamus. So, uh, yeah. so you and Seamus have a good rapport. And uh, you're like, what's the goopiest thing you've ever done, Seamus? <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. this is going to be a fun podcast. And then he brought up yeah. pills with you. Of course, uh, <laughs> what else would he bring up with Dr. Will Cole than poop? Uh so yeah, anyway, I thought yeah. it was a good kind of introduction to you two uh, in about two to three minutes. That was that was a really well done uh, sneak peek of what we have to look forward to. Thanks, Jimmy. And thanks for being so supportive. And like, really, like you're in this space of wellness. You're one of the most supportive people in my life. So I really am thankful for you. Oh, well, God bless you, man. And I think the world of you. And that's why you're my co-host here. And I can yeah. always say, guys, I found Dr. Will Cole before he hit the big time <laughs> with Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited for it. And I'm excited to do both. We have great things for, for both shows and yes. I'm excited to be a part of it. Well, and uh, my sabbatical will come at a good time because you can get a whole bunch of Goop fella podcasts recorded. And then when I come back, it's all Jimmy all the time. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be good. See, I, it's kind of worked out. I mean, God worked it out in a really awesome way where I, yes. you were taking the sabbatical and those are six months where I can uh, do a season two uh, for Goop fellas. And you've deserved this. I mean, the reason I chose you to be my co-host here is I could see the talent that you have um, probably before you even knew you had the great talent in you. And you've turned into a great podcaster and now you're a seasoned veteran podcaster and you're just going to knock it out of the ballpark on uh, Goop Fella. So I'm super proud of you. But let's get into today, today's show because we could gush on each other the whole show. But <laughs> um, I'm noticing something happening out there in the culture, Will, and I'm sure you've seen it. I know you're in kind of the day to day of talking to patients, but you also are a keen observer of what's happening in the culture and there seems to be kind of this poo-pooing uh, and looking at people as strange for having a juve light next to their legs while they're doing a podcast, for example. Uh, people that are trying to be proactive about their health, doing all of these things that are kind of outside of conventional wisdom. A ketogenic diet would fit that example. Uh, intermittent fasting would fit that. Uh, ice baths, all of these kind of and take, taking ashwagandha and holy basil. Um, you know, these kinds of things, they're outside of what conventional wisdom would say is healthy uh, and is looked at as odd. What do you think's going on here? And uh, I, I listed a article from the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, doing one meal a day. Oh, my gosh, that's absolutely bonkers. What do you think's happening? Is it just conventional wisdom is finally getting a bright light exposed on it and all these alternative voices are becoming louder? Is that what's happening? Yeah, I think it's the the wellness space is more mainstream than ever and larger than ever. And I think directly proportional to that, that rise in a, an awareness of wellness, you have the rise of skeptics and cynics and uh, people that are just going to be negative. And, and a lot of that is that you have a lot of trolls. And uh, when you have popularity, and I'm talking about the wellness space being more popular than ever, that's going to raise the voice of the trolls. Uh, in the space of social media and the blogosphere, it just happens. So you have a loud light on one end, and you're going to have a loud darkness on the other side. Yeah. Um, and it's just the way things go. And, and just, it's just our culture, which is kind of sad because there's a place for questioning. And we question right. a lot of things in wellness. Uh, and we need to vet things and and be thorough and and, and be uh, be objective and, and, and all of that good stuff. We're not blind followers. But on the same side, I think there's a clear line between that and cynicism and trolling people and being negative or this, you know, calling something bonkers uh, when it's really just clickbait. There's nothing beyond that. Well, and the unfortunate thing is there's trolling and there will always be trolling on social media. But this was in GQ magazine, this mocking of Jack Dorsey. And we're seeing it in the mainstream. We sometimes cover some of those kinds of headlines here on Keto Talk. It just seems to me that the ramping up of seeing all of these things that we know are good health modalities um, is just getting the mocking and the scorn, which the stated objective is probably to discourage people away from those. Oh, look at all those crazy keto people. Look at all those people got red light shining on their legs while they're doing podcasts. You know, <laughs> look at that person yeah. taking, you know, ashwagandha, crazy stuff. Can't even say that. And it just seems like suddenly. 
Like these things mm-hmm. have been out here for a while, but it just seems suddenly uh, do do people feel threatened all of a sudden? It's just kind of weird. No, no, I think it's I think there are different agendas and different reasons why people do it. Like, for example, like this GQ piece about Jack Dorsey's OMAD diet. Uh, I think that that may just be to get people to click it. I don't know if like Maybe. GQ as a GQ Australia is like full on anti OMAD, but it's just <laughs> dramatic headlines yeah. uh, when you click it versus I think there is this underlying trolling thing. I don't know if that's entirely t- uh, GQ's perspective here, right. um, but uh, yeah, I see it in all different levels uh, from social media blogs to in person, people just being extra negative about wellness, um, but it's never been more popular. So it doesn't surprise me. And I suppose it's one way to make yourself stand out from the crowd Um to be the antagonist, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I thought that was just interesting to talk about at the top of the show, but let's get into the meat of the show because we do love meat here on Keto Talk. Uh, hot topics is what we call this next section. And the first hot topic, how do you mitigate the effects of cortisol and insulin resistance even while eating keto that has been induced by taking prednisone for Crohn's disease? That's a loaded question. Yeah. So this is a tough question and I I don't want to oversimplify it, but the reality is if someone is taking prednisone, if they're on prednisone actively for an inflammatory bowel flare, an IBD flare, like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or any other reason why somebody's on prednisone, uh, there's very little you can do to mitigate the risk factors other than being as clean as you can from a food standpoint, uh, being healthy, all the things we would say anyways that's really the best thing you can do because you're not going to undo the side effects fully um, of prednisone depending on the dosage, meaning the higher dosage, typically the more side effects potential and the person's specific tolerance to it. Everybody kind of responds to it in a different way. So I, 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 that's doesn't, it's not really a nice answer, but there's no major way to mitigate the effects of cortisol and insulin resistance while you're on it. Now, when you're off of it, uh, just be again, be as deal with your foundational stuff as much as you can. Um, support detox pathways, support maybe increasing, uh, lowering insulin resistance, or maybe taking some berberine or other things that can improve insulin resistance as you're going off of it. But while you're going on it, you, while you're on it, you kind of have to just ride that wave of prednisone um, while you're. You know, the round that you're on uh, is still going on. And the sad reality is uh, this person that wrote this question and other people, they have to use these steroids long term. Um, And it's unfortunate. My mom has myasthenia gravis. And so she's tried to come off of her uh, medication, uh, the steroid medication several times will. And they just it just all of the symptoms come back with a vengeance if she does. So it's going to be a maintenance drug the rest of her life. So she she battles mm-hmm. with this very thing on a daily basis. Yeah. And the great, great news, and I think maybe the the light side of this is that a lot of people, when they start changing their lifestyle and getting healthy, that's going to reduce the need uh, for these types of drugs. And many people, not everybody, yep. but a lot of people, they just their dependency on things like steroids or anti-inflammatories or immunosuppressants or all the other medications that people can be on becomes tends to be less needed so less dosages and some are able to their doctors are able to get them off of it because they are improving their health uh, and those biomarkers that they're trying to manage with these medications 
Yep. Just do the best you can. Well, let's get to the second hot topic. What role could a ketogenic nutritional health plan play in the recovery from opioid addiction? I've never heard of a connection here. So the main reason why, I mean, it depends on why somebody was put on opioids to begin with. Were they just abusing it um, just because, which is certainly some people, but oftentimes opioid addiction begins because of a real prescription and they have some sort of pain, chronic pain, and they're prescribed opioids and then become addicted. Uh, So if it's because of pain and if they're in pain when they go off of it and they have these withdrawal symptoms and their pain flares up, and that's not every case, but I'm talking specifically to the pain and chronic pain problems, we've talked at length over the over the years on keto talk of the anti-inflammatory benefits that beta hydroxybutyrate has specifically uh, the ampk pathway actually decreases pain and inflammation so if someone has chronic pain they're addicted to opioids um, uh, the ampk pathway is one uh, improvement of how we can improve pain it also improves the nlrp3 inflammasome which is another pathway associated with pain um, and it, it uh, activates the uh, the uh, NRF2 pathway, which is the pro-antioxidant pathway. It lowers the COX-2 pathway, uh, which is similar to ibuprofen, sort of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. It has the same sort of mechanism beta-hydroxybutyrate does. So a lot of great things just from a ketone standpoint that can improve pain outcomes. And then focusing on a lot of real foods like these omega-3 fatty acids, which also uh, can decrease pain levels as well. So that would be for somebody that has chronic pain and is addicted to opioids. F- drug addiction aside, like if someone's addicted to it, uh, you know, other than improving the brain, improving brain function, it can be a tool, but it's not going to be rehab for that person. Obviously, it has to be a part of a bigger recovery, uh, not just keto- the ketogenic diet alone is not going to you know, make somebody uh, not uh, addicted to opioids. Yeah. Well, let's get to the third hot topic. What's the difference between saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated fats, and how much of each do you need in your keto diet? Yeah, we throw around the word fat like it's all the same thing, but there are different kinds of fats. Can you explain the differences? Yeah, so the difference between saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated. Um, basically, they all these types of fats are long chains uh, on like a chemical level. Uh, they are long chains of carbon atoms with one acidic group. Uh, but ba- basically, when this group is why they're called acids, is this acidic group on these carbon chains. Uh, and they basically, all these different types of fats, saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and polyunsaturated fats, all have different melting points and all have different smoking points, meaning when do they melt, what temperature do they melt, and w- what temperature do they smoke. Uh, and depending on these bonds, these carbon hydrogen bonds, that's going to determine the melting and the uh, the, uh, smoking point. So the saturated fats tend to be more solid at room temperature. Uh, So think of coconut oil uh, and they tend to melt when they are heated versus monounsaturated fats or even liquid in the fridge. So think of olive oil or avocado oil um, and they, the saturated fats are going to have a higher smoking point because of that. And the monounsaturated is going to have a lower smoking point. Uh, and polyunsaturated fats are the most delicate to heat. So think of like a flax oil or um, even a fish oil is very sensitive to light and heat. 
so this is how and why we need to be specific on the smoking points of different th oils that we're using, making sure that these healthy omega fats are not oxidized and exposed to heat and to light. Uh, and saturated fats tend to be uh, better for cooking with, even though what when you remove the polyphenols and these antioxidants in the monounsaturated fats, like think of olive oil. And if you are are frying, I would not fry something with extra virgin olive oil, but if you look at the smoking point of just regular olive oil, actually it has a higher high smoking point. So just read the smoking points, read the and look at the quality of the fats, and make sure you're getting good sources of it. As it relates to what percentage you should be having of these, yeah, uh, it depends on who you talk to, really, um, <laughs> and it depends on the. <laughs> you're going to have conflicting information everywhere. Oh yeah, um, and. And why it's conflicting, amongst other reasons, is that we're all different and we all have different genetics that uh, way we metabolize certain fats are different. We have different microbiomes. We have different uh, energy outputs, like how active are we that determine what fats work best for us. But for most people, we're going to need uh, a collection of all of these fats. If you look from an ancestral health standpoint, like a like uh, the Paleolithic sort of approach, typically they re recommend about, uh, they say about 10 to 15% of the fat that our ancestors would have had would have been saturated fat. Yeah. And the rest would be a collection of monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats from whole foods. Uh, it's important to know that most foods are more than one type of fat. Right. So, uh, you know, grass-fed beef is going to not just be saturated fat. There's definitely uh, some saturated fat, but it also has healthy omega fats, too. It's mostly so monounsaturated fat. That's a shock when people find out red meat is mostly monounsaturated fat. Right. So they're all going to be a collection of it. And the only way you're going to know is if you put it in something like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal or something like that mm -hmm. to see the breakups of that. Um, but the ones you basically want to reduce are going to be the high omega-6 oils, right. which are typically not from a whole food source, like vegetable oils, canola oils. Uh, these are pro-oxidative in higher amounts. But omega-6 is important, but it should be in the context of a whole food. Like even like a lot of vegetables, a lot of nuts and seeds have omega-6, but it's in the context of the whole food. It's not an isolated oil. Right. So that's my long-winded answer for that hot topic. <laughs> well, and you mentioned earlier that some of the monounsaturated fats like olive oil, avocado oil should not get harder in the refrigerator. Want to bet? <laughs> I, yeah. I accidentally put my avocado oil in the fridge one time. I don't know why I put it in there, but it ended up in there and it was solid as all get out, I guess, because it was really cold. I, I suppose the temperature Yeah, maybe it's extra matter. cold. <laughs> Yeah. It'll like, be less less yeah. hard than this saturated. Uh, oh, for yeah, sure. It's not yeah. butter hard. Yeah. It's not coconut oil yeah. hard. That's for sure. Well, let's get to the fourth hot topic. Should a type 1 diabetic who eats keto and sees a major glucose rise from powerlifting workout be concerned about this rise in glucose? This one gentleman wrote and then someone else wrote right behind him. I'm type 1 and I'm seeing this huge glucose right after a workout. Should I take an insulin uh, injection to lower it. I'm going, okay, this is definitely a hot topic question. 
Yeah, it is. And type 1 diabetic, they're not producing insulin on their own, or type 1.5 diabetics, these late autoimmune diabetics, uh, LADA, they um, are both going to have to be just diligent with monitoring their glucose and finding the trends of where their blood sugar spikes depending on their activity level or what they eat and how that influences their glucose levels. So, you like I've seen so many patients with type one and type one point five diabetes over the years, and they all kind of have their own uh, patterns of things that they see. But yes, to answer your question, if you see really high numbers uh, from a certain activity, you're going to have to uh, uh, dose your insulin appropriately. Um, but generally speaking, definitely can vary from person to person. Higher up workouts where your heart rate is elevated will most likely make your blood sugar drop which is going to be the opposite thing. So at that point, you would want to dose your insulin less to not have the hypoglycemic low blood sugar. Um, but the sort of harder, low rep, like just imagine like a higher weight, uh, lower rep workouts when you're doing your arms, when you're doing your legs, this can actually cause an increase of the blood sugar because it's impacting cortisol, which is going to impact blood pressure and blood sugar levels. So just be mindful of that. Depending on the type of workout that you're doing, test your blood sugar and dose your insulin accordingly. Cool. Well, let's get to the fifth and final hot topic. Should I uh, eat a low fat FODMAP, real food based keto diet to control my IBS when my doctor tells me the fat digesting bile is flowing back into my stomach? Or how do I do that is what they asked. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, they ask, how do I eat a low FODMAP, real food-based keto diet to control IBS? Well, FODMAPs are fermentable sugars, uh, the, the long fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, basically sugars that ferment in your intestines, um, are found in a lot of different foods, but most notably are certain plant foods like onions and garlic and other uh, sort of uh, higher sugar these FODMAP uh, vegetables and fruits. Um, so I, this is what I would say about this. The question is, how do I have a lot, a low, eat a low FODMAP keto diet? I would say by its very definition, a very low carb diet uh, or, or a keto diet is basically a low FODMAP diet um, because we're removing a lot of higher FODMAP stuff. I mean, removing a lot of high FODMAP stuff. So sometimes that people have to go a little bit more and like measure certain FODMAP foods while they're healing their gut. And there are apps for that. If you like the Monash Institute, you can just type in like FODMAP calculator. You can plug into your foods uh, and they'll see a serving size for what is recommended from the university that researches SIBO and uh, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, mm -hmm. uh, which is typically what causes FODMAP, all these acronyms, but FOD, SIBO typically causes a FODMAP intolerance or sensitivity to FODMAPs. So, but if you look at the way that most people are doing a whole foods ketogenic diet, it is a low FODMAP diet for most people. Well, that's all the hot topics that we have. Let's get to the kickoff question. And this one is from Susan from Sweden. Thanks for listening all the way in there in Sweden. Hi, guys. I'm a longtime listener and appreciate all of the information that you give so generously. I'm trying to figure out how to heal from fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, which I was diagnosed with in 2014. I've eaten an LCHF diet for many years, lost around 30 kilo, 66 pounds. I'm 59 years old and have been a yo-yo dieter my entire life on low carb. I have been much more successful in stabilizing my weight 
and the trend has been slowly moving in the right direction, about 22 pounds more to go. But it's such a struggle. Even still, my fasting blood glucose is 5 to 6 millimoles per liter, blood ketones 0.5 to 0.9. I've been very strict in my keto diet for a while, but the aches and pain in my arms and legs from my fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue persists. The good news is that my brain is a lot clearer and I'm able to work again. It's so difficult to find any doctors here in Sweden who are willing to run the test that I need to dig a little deeper into this. What would you suggest that I do to help with my health issues? Thanks for your input, Susan from Sweden. So I I have a suggestion, uh, Susan from Sweden. Um, Go to drwillcole.com because I do know that he sees patients around the world and would be delighted to help you. But uh, beyond that, Will, how do you heal fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue when you're doing everything perfect on your ketogenic lifestyle? Yes, definitely. I have a heart for what you're going through, Susan. This, you know, breaks my heart to see someone go through fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue like this. Um, I would say this: you have to find what's driving it. Because when someone has CFS or chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, the underlying drivers of it is going to vary from person to person. So um, look for things like chronic infections. I would get a differential lab perspective. And again, we run these for patients all around the world, but any you know functional, good functional medicine doctor can do it. Um, so some things that I find driving chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia would be sort of these underlying reactivated viral infections like Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, cytomegalovirus or CMV, and human herpes 6 virus, which is HHV6. So these viral infections are, statistically speaking, about 95% of the population has some latent viral issues, but they're not reactivated. So some people tend to have these sort of low-grade active, not past infections, to these viral infections that are associated with reactivating chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and other autoimmune problems. Uh, Look at Lyme disease, look at Babesia, look at Bartonella, these sort of bacterial parasitic co-infections to Lyme disease and other tick-borne problems. Um, Things like mold, heavy metals, uh, underlying gut issues, obviously. These can all be a compound problem as well. It doesn't have to be just one of these. Um, So... I just threw a lot of things at you, Susan, Um, but the reality is we have to see what the underlying pieces of the puzzle, and it can be more than one thing. It can be a confluence of several different factors, but that's what you have to do when you're doing everything right from a food standpoint. Like Jimmy said at the top of the show, you kind of have to lean into what's beyond food that's making me feel like this. And certainly the ketogenic diet can be an amazing part of this healing journey. It's lowering inflammation levels, helping the brain, helping the immune system, Um, helping lower blood sugars, all that stuff is fantastic. But a lot of these people are going to have to lean into some more advanced uh, uh, tools and uh, uh, modalities into their life. Um, So we'd run more extended labs. We'd look at different protocols that would be case specific based on your labs, basically. And her blood glucose of five to six is a little bit elevated from what the functional range would be. Uh, What is that? Somewhere around 100 to 120. 20 would be five to six millimoles per liter. So um, mm-hmm. it could be that this pain is driving some of that glucose production. And if she could get the pain down, mm-hmm. the blood sugar would come down. Certainly. Yeah. And so I would just be um, multifaceted and multi-pronged as far as the approach, because it's normally going to take one more than one thing on your healing journey 
just as I just said, it's sometimes caused by more than one thing. Yeah. Uh, so we have to look at all the different pieces and not be overly myopic and say, well, if it's, it should be just this one thing that solves it because it's normally not that simple, sadly. Yep. Well, Susan, thank you for your question. Again, thank you for listening all the way there in Sweden. And guys, we're going to take a break here. We'll be right back with today's health headlines. Are you looking for a quick keto meal that has not just a little bit of protein in it, but also all the electrolytes, vitamins, protein, fat, and more that will meet one third of your daily needs? Then let me introduce you to Keto Chow. It's a quick and easy to mix shake that is designed to give you a complete ketogenic meal. You're able to customize the calories because you decide how much fat to add. Most people mix it with heavy whipping cream, but you can also use avocado oil, coconut cream, a little MCT oil, or any other fat of your choice. Keto Chow is designed specifically for people on the go to replace one to two meals in their day. It comes in eight flavors, including chocolate, vanilla, chocolate peanut butter, cookies and cream, strawberry, mocha, banana, and salted caramel in both individual meal samples as well as a large 21 meal bag. There's also a sample of all the things bundle that has one of each flavor plus a keto chow blender bottle to get you started. Head on over to jimmylovesketochow.com and use the coupon code LLVLC to get 10% off of your first order. jimmylovesketochow.com have you been looking for a quality brand of CBD oil and didn't know where to turn? Let me introduce you to Botan CBD. Go to BotanCBD.com, that's B-O-T-A-N-C-B-D.com, and you'll see a full line of CBD oil products. The benefits of CBD oil are plentiful, including pain relief, anti-inflammation, mental clarity and focus, stress and anxiety reliever, and the list goes on. I've been using Botan CBD oil on my sciatica pain, and it makes it disappear. You can rub it on the body or take it orally and you can trust that Botan CBD is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. They are a pharmaceutical grade organic CBD small batch and handcrafted for you. Head on over to BotanCBD.com and use the code Jimmy at checkout for 15% off your first order. Live life well. Botan CBD. We're back here on Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. KetoTalk.com is our website. If you miss anything about the show, we got all the notes right there for you, links to all the health headlines we're about to talk about and all the questions that came in today. So let's get to the health headlines, Will. And this first one, I, I had to go over this one first because it's, again, another example of how when bad science is put out there, and it gets lots of media attention. It has this echo chamber effect. And this headline uh, is uh, a part of that. Why long-term success on keto can be challenging for women, according to hormonal experts. And so they asked this uh, hormonal naturopathic doctor and an author of a book called The Hormone Boost, Natasha Turner, uh, listening intently as female patients sat across from her, lamenting on how her struggles with maintaining a healthy weight or going, I've been doing keto for months and at first the weight was falling off so easily. Now I'm getting it back. I have no idea what happened. 
but she wasn't surprised. Ever since the keto diet exploded in popularity, she's been having to field complaints like this on a regular basis, primarily from female patients. I'm seeing a constant trend of women who are adopting the ketogenic diet, and the majority of them do not lose weight. She's seen lots of patients end up gaining unwanted weight, losing muscle, and getting adrenal fatigue while on this buzzy eating plan. Of course, in this article, they cite that study where they compared male mice with female mice, (laughs) and the female mice didn't do as well. So this is where the bad science ends up uh, in a bad way in some of these kind of echo chamber articles. What'd you think about this one, Will? And you see a lot of patients that are females. Did you buy mm-hmm. this? Yeah, I think I, no, I didn't buy this. Absolutely not. And I mean, a colleague of mine was actually interviewed a friend of mine, Taz Bhatia. And, you know, I was, she's a great person. I don't know, like she was kind of anti-keto in her quote. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been on our podcast talking about keto before, but I think it's sometimes hard to talk about the nuance of this yes. in a little soundbitey article where they're just extrapolating things that you're saying. Um, I think that there are definitely ways that aren't right for the individual for women that can mess people up hormonally. Uh, that applies to men as well. Um, but I, you know, I, I've definitely said on the show before, it's, it's sometimes it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater and they're just not doing the ketogenic diet right for them. Just like any diet can be done, not right for them. I just think there's such a spotlight on the ketogenic diet right now that it's really over dramatized because yes. uh, it's helping women way more than you're seeing these, uh, <laughs> things that we need to tweak and we yes. need to pay attention to them. Um, they actually dropped ketotarian, they name dropped ketotarian in the article, which Uh-oh. I kind of liked. Yeah. In a good way. <laughs> it was a positive thing. If you're going to do keto, it was a, we'd rather you do ketotarian is kind of what they said. Yeah. Which thank you. Well and good. But the bigger picture, I don't agree with some of the comments that they've made. Um, and then lumping that into the ketogenic diet. This is not not the whole ketogenic diet. It's just things that you have to personalize within your own ketogenic journey that we have to talk about, not throwing the whole thing out and saying every woman, it's not good for women. Uh, and the study we talked about that study last week about it's this mouse study. Uh, it's not something to base your whole life decision on, on a, on a female mouse study. <laughs> unless you're Mighty Mouse's uh, wife or something. Yeah. So. <laughs> unless you're Minnie Mouse, don't worry about it. Here I come to save the day. Oh, sorry. Showing my age, Will. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, sadly, though, those headlines get all the attention and uh, it makes us have to address it here on Keto Talks. So. <laughs> well, another one of those that we have to address on Keto Talk is this next health headline. Diets high in red meat linked with greater health risks According to two new studies, uh, one study published in the journal Circulation reported that replacing red meat with plant-based sources of protein decreased some of the risk factors that are associated with heart disease. The second study was in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. It found that a diet that was high in red meat was associated with a higher risk of early death among men. Now, you look at those studies and they go into detail about them. They're analyzing, once again, data. Now, they did point out in that first one, uh, which was researchers at Harvard and Purdue, uh, they looked at all randomized controlled trials. Now, that's generally better data if you're going to do kind of an epidemiological study looking at other studies uh, using all RCT. So that's a better one, but it's still not Mm -hmm. a perfect uh, study of doing your own randomized controlled trial. What did you think about these two studies that seemingly are damning towards uh, red meat? 
So the uh, one published in circulation, the meta-analysis, was a small number of participants. So that's one limitation that I would say for that. It wasn't a big group of people. Um, also, these random controlled trials, they, they ask people to change their diets, oftentimes have a lower compliance, uh, which could also affect the outcome as, as well. Um, and the other one the I think it was in Finland, Finland was yeah. observational. It was observational. So yes. it means it can't uh, actually prove the high meat diet actually raised from the 1980s you know, too. Next, so they were probably eating the yeah. leanest of the lean because that was when low fat was all the rage. Exactly. So, yes, I think that's better formulated than some studies. And I think we have to look at biological variability. We have to look at this, but uh, I, I, um, I, there's definitely limitations in both of these studies. Well, and like you said in the previous article, context is everything. There's probably nothing wrong if you wanted to replace some of these uh, animal-based foods with some plant-based options. That's why you wrote Keto Dairy, and um, mm -hmm. that that I, I think I think they're just painting the wrong picture. It's not an all-or-nothing proposition. Right. And then oh, oftentimes, even these articles that come out and say, well, saturated fat is bad, like this is what this study is saying, they will normally end the article with saying what you just said. Well, we don't really know this fully. There's definitely more studies and they back, they back, they, they bring the nuance at the end of the article. But, but who the problem gets there? Is, who gets to the end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People are reading the beginning and the headline and then you actually read it and they're like, well, actually what we just say on this show every week, this is not the best study. You don't actually need to change your life based on this. All that stuff is normally said in even a decent, you know, article about these, these are negative saturated fat pieces. It's like the drug ad where you, where you got the guy that's talking really fast at the end and real low tones. It may exactly. cause death. It may yeah. cause side effects include. Blah, 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 blah. It's like <laughs> the dramatic headline at the end. It's all this disclaimer that don't actually don't take anything from this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, let's get to the next headline from Science Focus. There's no such thing as a sugar rush. Eating sugar won't improve your mood, but it could be damaging to your health. And so it's it's one of those things that we've always believed. Oh, people like to eat sugar because you get a rush. But and, and you do. And yet in this article, they're making the claim that that's simply not true. Do you buy that? I, I think that there's a difference between physiological changes significantly yeah. and mental, emotional changes that can impact your physiology. Yeah. But I do think that there is an addictive state to certain foods that may be psychosomatic for yes. some people. It's like it, it is this sort of pleasurable experience. It's but drug. physiologically, yeah, physiologically, it may not be showing up in the way uh, that uh, we like tend to think of it as just historically as the sugar rush. Well, and the, the study actually showed that most people feel more depressed and worse having sugar, which we know. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a good piece. Hopefully people read it and <laughs> gives them if they need another reason not to have sugar, maybe it'll be good because we know it's actually not going to be beneficial for anybody. If you're a fan of keto talk for a very long time and you're still eating sugar, we have let you down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get to the next health headline. Could very low bad cholesterol bring about stroke danger? And so uh, this one gets into how we've always considered LDL cholesterol the bad cholesterol. But Will, surprise, surprise, if you have too low of this bad cholesterol, you might be putting yourself at risk in your health. 
I know. Yeah. And it's something that we've talked about in functional medicine and you've obviously talked about in, uh, with your research with cholesterol clarity for a long time. This is um, not news to us in the wellness space, but uh, it is needed. I mean, 25% of all your body's cholesterol is in your brain. Your hormones need it. Your, your immune system needs cholesterol. It's the Goldilocks principle. You don't want excess of something. You don't want too little of something. I mean, there's a reason why our body needs this for every cell of our body uh, has needs cholesterol for to function. Uh, so it makes sense to me where you see the, the side effects showing up in studies from too low cholesterol, which is completely opposite of many uh, conventional doctors will say, well, there's no lower limit. Basically, lower is better. And if they right. see this cholesterol under 100, they're going to give you a, a you know, high five because you've done such a great job with your statin drug and getting this cholesterol uh, low. Well, that's according to the study uh, and common sense that there is a lower limit of, of cholesterol and it's something that our body needs. They mentioned the stroke risk in here, but the thing that terrifies me about having too low a cholesterol are some of the neurological effects that happen and the mood changes. And I mean, if you get down to, say, 130 in your total cholesterol, you're putting your brain at huge risk. Uh, like you said, 25 uh, percent of the cholesterol in the body is right there in the noggin <laughs> and mm-hmm. you don't want to have that be too low. Um, and at one point when I was on Lipitor before I started uh, the Atkins diet 15 years ago, I was I got mine down to 120, my total cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, and Christine will tell you I was not a happy man <laughs> at the time. Right. Yeah. I, and I see it sometimes on people that aren't taking statin drugs. I just saw it today on someone's lab where they aren't even on a statin drug, but it's these low, like low fat diets for a long yes. period of time. And they are associated with the brain not being optimal to varying degrees. Mm. And I'm just thinking Alzheimer's disease and dementia as you get older, it's just not good. I'd rather have high cholesterol at that point in my life than very, very low LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's get to the final health headline. Limiting carbohydrates uh, intake at breakfast may help a type 2 diabetes patient. Cutting out carbohydrates in breakfast could significantly reduce blood sugar levels among type 2 diabetes patients, according to the outcomes of a self-management program. So this guy, Jonathan Little, an associate professor at the School of Health and Exercise Sciences, at the University of British Columbia in Canada, has been investigating the effects of a low-carb, high-fat diet. He found that eating foods with low-carbohydrate content actually improves glucose levels for the next 24 hours. Who knew, Will? I had no idea. Uh, The results of his study were published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Now, it's a very small study, 23 people, but what would you think? I think I like studies like this. <laughs> it is really cool to see. I definitely see it on a clinical level. Um, and it's definitely true. And it's countercultural. I mean, because what is this typical Western diet? And that's American, European, Canadian diet. It's a lot of pastries, typically a lot yes. of carby stuff. Um, and this can impact people's like visceral response against like removing these sort of uh, very comforting traditional breakfast ideas. But I mean, patients that I have that have type two diabetes, uh, this is one of the things, one of the first things that you're going to have to do is across a, a decrease carbs across the board. Um, but specifically, um, breakfast, 
um, when they have the DOM phenomenon, a pathological DOM phenomenon, oftentimes with higher glucose readings, uh, the last thing they need is another pile of, of carbs and certainly yes. refined carbohydrates. And I love that they uh, outline the physiology of it all. Um, you know, describing what the pancreas's role is in the body to produce this hormone called insulin, to allow the absorption of sugar in, to be turned into energy or stored. And then the excess happens when the body can't metabolize them, can't make enough insulin, can't utilize it. I mean, I thought they did a really good job of describing kind of the, the physiological pathway of, of why carbohydrate restriction works. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, that's all the health headlines. So we're up to the study portion of the show, and we got a good one here today. Low-carbohydrate diets differing in carbohydrate restriction improve cardiometabolic and anthropometric markers in healthy adults. A randomized controlled clinical trial. You love those. This is actually uh, a couple of the authors, uh, three of them I know, or actually one, two, three, four of them I know personally from New Zealand. So Grant Schofield, Karen Zinn, Simon Thornley, and Catherine Crofts. Um, I have been to New Zealand a few times, got to meet all four of those guys. So uh, they're researchers that look at ketogenic diets. And for this particular study, they were looking at LCHF diets. Uh, that's useful in a range of health conditions uh, using this as a treatment modality. But there's little research evaluating uh, the different degrees of carbohydrate restriction on outcomes. So they did a study taking a look at different kinds of carbohydrate restricted diets. They took 77 healthy participants, randomized them to either very low carbohydrate ketogenic, low carb diet, or moderate to low carb diet containing 5, 15, and 25% of their total energy coming from carbohydrates. They put them into this for 12 weeks. And what they found was uh, compliance uh, was only about half the, the study participants. I wonder how many of them, what was it, the most restrictive that they fell out? I don't. Did they parse that out in here? Did you see that? I think that they did. I think that they said that the best compliance was the moderate carb yeah. Um, Which if you're sugar addicted and you go right to very low carb ketogenic, <laughs> it mm -hmm. might be a little hard uh, if they didn't give them any. But anyway, the conclusion was that uh, any uh, kind of carbohydrate restriction had a positive effect. So what they were saying was figure out which one you want to do and get the effect. Did you agree with that conclusion? Definitely. I think it's something that I see clinically. I'm just from a, like a professional experience. Uh, when you see these cardiometabolic biomarkers improve with lower carb diets, and again, I would lump it into most of my patients where they're in this sort of moderate carb, low carb, or keto uh, carb, depending on the person and what they need. But I agree with you that from a compliance standpoint, you have to look at where their starting point is, and you sometimes have to lean people in from a compliance standpoint so they, they can see sustainability. Uh, and we would all obviously all agree uh, this is a lifestyle, yeah. and we would also uh, agree that you have to kind of uh, meet a person where they're at and lean them in from a sustainability standpoint sometimes. Now, some people are ready to just go all in, um, but I thought it was interesting. I thought actually the compliance was – the most interesting because yes. I see the cardiometabolic improvements, but I thought it was interesting to see what they saw from a compliance standpoint. So if the 5%, 15% and 25% all produced in this study, the exact same results in the study participants who made it to the very end, isn't that an argument for everybody doing 25% or how, how do they, 
How do you parse that out? I mean, I, I would say that how I would receive it and apply that into somebody's life is to find their individual carb tolerance. Not everybody has that. Maybe the people that, that were studied were able to do that. And when you're talking about long-term health, what that looks like, not everybody can get away with that amount of carbs. I couldn't. Um, and they won't, (laughs) yeah, they won't feel as good and they won't, they maybe will see their numbers not improve. So it's about kind of within that very low carb to moderate carb uh, range, where do you thrive at both how you feel and your labs. But I think this is where the future holds is yes. a study like this is kind of looks at the nuance with this bigger umbrella of how we can rotate carbs and, you know, yes. moderate a carb certain days and around your cycle for women or uh, depending on personal preference, like we would all be as a community so much healthier uh, and such a bigger light on a hill for the rest of the world to see of really making this this not non-dogmatic, finding your personal wiggle room yes. uh, way to live a healthy life. And that's the take home of this study, I think, is realizing when you say keto, we're not talking about one diet. Um, We're talking about Mm -hmm. a multiplicity of diets and you find the one that's right for you based on your insulin resistance, your insulin sensitivity, your your tolerance to carbohydrate uh, and, and your personal health issues that you're dealing with. I think this is a good reminder that keto isn't one thing. It's it could Mm -hmm. be uh, my keto is different than Will Cole's. And that's cool. We're both getting the Mm -hmm. benefits of what we're doing. Yeah. And and when you talk about very low carb, low carb and moderate carb, there are people we talked about this. Someone submitted a question a week or two ago saying there's they still produce ketones when they are up to 100 grams um, of carbs a a day. Uh, So, yes, keto is way bigger than what we just think is less than 20 grams of carbs, not necessarily for everybody. And then beyond that. Where can we be out of ketosis, but still decrease these risk factors? And communicating this message to that main, those mainstream health headlines, because <laughs> they like mm-hmm. to go to the very extreme. It's zero carb, you stupid car- carnivore yeah. people. You're not eating any carbs at all. And it's like, yeah, that's yeah. not everybody in keto. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Well, let's pause here and we'll be back with today's featured questions. We're back here on Keto Talk, and we're up to the featured questions of the day. And uh, you ready, uh, Will? Yeah, let's go for it. Let's go, man. I'm ready to go. So this (laughs) first one is from Donna. Hey, Jimmy and Will, can you explain more about the blood glucose rebound effect that happens after eating keto for a while and then having a higher carb meal? I've noticed much higher blood sugar readings when I eat carbohydrates while on a ketogenic diet than I did just eating low carb. I suppose it's a sign of insulin resistance that it's gotten worse, but I can't imagine why since I'm eating keto. Granted, it is not always perfect on my keto diet and I don't track macros anymore, but my normal readings two hours postprandial might have been 130 before, but now they're 160. Good luck with your sabbatical, Jimmy, and thank you for answering my question, Donna. So Donna wants to know, Why is the blood glucose response to a higher carb meal greater since I've gone strict keto than it was when I was only eating low carb? I remember when I was in the paleo world, they always talked about this phenomenon that, well, you can't go keto because once you start eating carbs again, you're going to get a more profound blood glucose response to the carbohydrate. Is there a physiological reason why that happens? 
There is. And I, I actually get this question a lot uh, at different seminars that I teach at. They'll pull me aside and, and they ask me this question. There actually is no evidence to show that, you know, a low carb diet or the ketogenic diet actually leads to someone being more carb intolerant. But I would say this, just like there's this adaptation period from a metabolic standpoint, when you're getting into ketosis and you're becoming keto adapted, uh, there's also an adaptation uh, period when you're coming out of it as well. That makes sense. So because you're changing your hormones again and your, yes. your mitochondria are used to burning ketones now. And then if you start changing your macronutrients, <laughs> it has to shift where it's getting its fuel again. Uh, so your mitochondria is like, well, what the heck? Uh, because it's not maybe burning the ketones that it was it was utilizing from an energy standpoint. So think of your hormones, think of your microbiome, think of your mitochondria. These are the things that need to shift. But what you'll see is if you choose to increase your carbs over time, it'll come back down. Right. Um, it's not gonna. You're not gonna be uh, intolerant <laughs> to carbs. Um, long term, it's just this adaptation fluctuation period, just like it was going into ketosis. And that's why people that are on a ketogenic diet and they go to get a five hour glucose tolerance test. Most of the medical doctors I've talked to about this that are into keto, they're like, OK, ramp up your carbs for a few days before you go get that GTT, because <laughs> if not, you're going to have this kind of abnormal response. And as you just stated, when you're a fat burner and your body's used to burning fat for fuel, and then suddenly you introduce 70 grams of glucose, pure glucose into the system. Mm -hmm. Don't be surprised that you have a huge response. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And again, it tends to come, to go away and dissipate with time and your body kind of readapts. And that's a good thing. Your body is adapting. We don't look at the big picture. We like the acuteness of, oh, this one yeah. blood test told me this. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, going over all the health tests, don't ever hang your hat on any one test. It's not the mm -hmm. end of the world. Right. Well, Donna, thank you for your question. And we're up to the second featured question of the day. This one's from Kenneth. Hi, Jimmy and Dr. Cole. I've been keto for a year and a half and I've lost 60 pounds without taking any medications. I recently learned that I have the APAO2 gene mutation that makes it difficult for my body to process saturated fat. My doctor insists that I cut my fat intake and then eat a lot of vegetables. My LDLP is 2418 and my heart calcium score came in at a very high 268. I also have high oxidized LDL. I've been dairy-free for a year, which has helped me boost my HDL to an all-time high of 49. I took statins for almost 18 years before the side effects became too much for me to bear. I'm 68 years old, just want to be as optimally healthy as I can be. The one bright spot is my inflammation marker, HSCRP, is stellar at 0.3. Should I be eating more lean proteins and increasing my intake of avocados, olives, and nuts, along with eating more leafy greens? I'm considering trying the ketotarian way of eating since it seems to fit my genetic needs at this time. I just hate to give up so many of the animal-based foods that I enjoy. Thanks for your help, Kenneth. And he gave a whole list of all of the lab values that I'll let you articulate when you give your answer. But how can I optimize my keto lifestyle with this APAO2 gene mutation that seemingly makes it difficult to process saturated fat? So APOE, APOA2, sorry, stands for apolipoprotein A2, which is different, different than the APOE4 that we talked about before, yes. but they both, they, in, in previous episodes, I should, I should say, but they both influence the way that our body uh, metabolizes fats. 
so people with the ApoA2 uh, variant, uh, the number is the most well-studied one, is the RS5082, uh, actually influences the way that these people metabolize saturated fats. Uh, so the studies that were done on this ApoA2 uh, gene allele or variant, gene variant, um, showed that above 22 grams of saturated fat a day increased weight gain, increased um, negative cholesterol uh, numbers and inflammation levels. Uh, so uh, what does this mean? I would say bigger picture is we are more than just our genes. It only accounts for a percentage of this. You can have genetic SNPs for different things, but you measure someone's labs and they're actually not manifesting uh, what this gene is associated with. So it's definitely more complex than just like we just talked about hanging your hat on one lab and or hanging your hat, your hat on one gene variant right. is important. But with that said, uh, if I had this variant or if I have a patient with this variant and we run these and you get the SNPs from typically the raw genetic data from 23andMe, you can look at the SNPs. So basically for this uh, APOA2, the, looking at RS5082, if you have the AA, it's the normal variant. And if you have the GG, which is what you'll see on the raw gene data um, from 23andMe, this is uh, where you have potential problems with higher saturated fats um, and you would maybe consider decreasing it. So as this gentleman had suggested, maybe going to more of a ketotarian approach, a more plant-based keto, maybe with good omega fats from fish, I think that that would definitely be something that I would advise a patient to do. Uh, but also keep in mind that it is more complex than just this one gene variant. Um, but if you're looking at saturated fats, uh, and we mentioned earlier, these whole foods that are, quote unquote, having saturated fats are more than just saturated fats. Right. So if you're looking at the data and saying, oh, don't have more than 22 grams of saturated fats, just to give you context for that, like a saturated fat uh, in eggs is about 1.6 grams per egg. Uh, like butter is seven grams in one tablespoon. Ghee is three grams per teaspoon. Uh, even like uh, red meat, which is like the classic, like what people, the personification of saturated fats is only about eight grams per six ounce. So yeah, coconut you oil have these, will be the highest. So <laughs> Yeah. And, co and coconut oil is um, because it's a medium chain triglyceride and not a long chain uh, saturated fat. It doesn't yeah. always interact in the same way. But yes, you would definitely lump that into to limiting it. Um, even if, even though it's a, a primarily MCT uh, saturated fats. But with that said, all these quote unquote saturated fat foods, if you're looking at a 22 gram threshold in the studies with the APOA2, you can still have them technically. You would just have less of them and maybe go for more of things like avocados and olives and olive oil, nuts and seeds and fish. Um, and I would, and he came to that conclusion already. And I yes. would, I would say uh, Ken was, was pretty accurate there. What discordant numbers, though, 0.3 on the HSCRP, which is unbelievably good, but then a heart calcium score of 268. It's like, whoa. <sighs> yeah. 68 and years are, old, I guess, is the big thing mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Totally. And, and it, we CRP is just one type of inflammation. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. It's definitely the most common one that we run. Definitely 
something that we have a lot of research to show. It's it's not good and have high levels. But I see that a lot of times where you have someone that is very, very obviously in an inflammatory state and you run CRP and it's low. So it's definitely we are so more so much more complex than than any one lab, whether it's good or bad. When Kenneth first wrote to me, he said his small LDLP was 2418. I went, what? (laughs) And then I clarified and it was his total LDL particles. I was like, you freak me out, dude. I've never seen a 2418 for small. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Kenneth, for that question. And we're up to the third featured question of the day. This one's from Brenda. Hi, Jimmy and Will. I just listened to your special episode with your guest co-host, Dr. Jay Wiles, from a few weeks ago, where you were discussing that bogus AFib study. As someone who has this condition, I appreciated your input on that. But you guys didn't really say whether keto would help with this disease or not. My experience has been that my heart palpitations get worse when I'm eating keto and that if I back off of my thyroid medication, I get relief from that. I'm not sure why, but I suspect it is the hormone regulatory effects that come from eating keto. Unfortunately, when I do this, my TSH shoots way up to, um, what did he say, 338. Yes, that's not a typo, 338. And my doctor was obviously very concerned. I went back on the medication for fear of not knowing what the impact of this chronically high TSH would have on the body. I live in Canada, and the doctors rarely test any of the other numbers on the thyroid panel. So can you talk more about what impact eating keto has on patients like me with AFib? Thanks so much, Brenda. So is there any studies or your personal experience working with patients that keto helps patients that have atrial fibrillation? I, I would say absolutely. That's my experience. Patients that have AFib and other, you know, basically it's, uh, irregular heartbeats, arrhythmia issues tend to get better overall when they're eating a clean, whole foods, uh, ketogenic diet. Um, but I would say this, uh, there are, we, we know this, that low carb diets, ketogenic diets being one of them, um, can um, cause electrolyte imbalances for some people. So some people that have um, a, a tendency towards AFib, especially when they're first starting the ketogenic diet, that electrolyte imbalances could for a time in, impact heart rhythm. And I could definitely see that. Normally I'm, I'm monitoring case and I'm making sure the patient's doing everything appropriately for their body. So I don't see that happening, but I could see that in theory for a while while the person's adjusting and their electrolytes are maybe a little bit off that if they already have AFib, it's not going to cause AFib, but it's going to kind of accentuate those arrhythmias for a time being. But again, back to the bigger picture, um, the studies that have been done on AFib uh, actually have been shown to when someone loses weight, their AFib actually improves, which you can actually see a, a just 10% weight loss in someone's initial body weight can result in over 40% improvement in people with AFib, their symptoms of AFib. So the mass, vast majority of people I find actually get better because their body's healthier and this is good for their heart. Um, but I do see some you know, succinct nuances that you want to make sure that electrolytes are optimized, not just for people with AFib, but people across the board. Um, but again, don't 
throw the baby out with the bathwater. I need a new <laughs> statement, a, for a new analogy there. But don't. <laughs> that's a horrible. Who? Why would you ever throw a baby? Why would you out throw a baby bath, out with bathwater? Hey, it's a kind of colloquialism. Don't feel bad about it. <laughs> I need to think of something better because I want to quit talking about babies being thrown out. But the the bigger picture is there's so much good, uh, and we just need to mitigate the few tweaks that we need to. That make sure that someone is optimizing electrolyte balance, which is good. Don't throw the vegan out with the cucumber. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just trying to think of <laughs> of something that would be related to nutrition. We <laughs> I use it too much to keep saying it. I need something else. <laughs> yeah, just don't do that with Seamus. And I guess you could do it once with him, and then it's done. You don't do it again. So <laughs> I think we just like to beat. What people like to do that a lot. They, they like to, to just like to oh, beat a dead horse. What is that? What you were going to say? <laughs> <laughs> they like broad sweeping statements and overgeneralizing, and that's not the way that life is many no. times. Well, Brenda, thank you for your question. And sorry, we did not thoroughly answer your question when I had Jay on, but uh, I'm glad that Will was able to chime in with his experience here today. And we're up to the Keto Talk mailbox portion of the show. Kristen has this question. This is interesting. Hey, guys, I eat keto, but I have a really bad case of opiate induced constipation, which forces me to use senna leaf as a laxative on a daily basis. I try to boost my gut health with fermented foods, probiotics, and digestive aids, but it seems I'm hopelessly addicted to taking laxatives since I can't poop without help. This is probably a silly question, but is my microbiome suffering as a result of this? I haven't had a solid stool in months. So embarrassing. Thanks for your help with this. Kristen, well, Kristen, you came to the right show because we did a whole show called the Poop Cast. So if we did a Poop Cast and you've got uh, Dr. Pooptacular here, uh, Will Cole, I'm sure he can answer this question. Is using Cineleaf <laughs> as a daily laxative to deal with opiate-induced constipation causing damage to the microbiome and general gut health? How can it not be? Yeah, it's. I mean, the question here is that or the, the point that Kristen made here was when she said she hasn't had a solid stool in months, meaning she's having looser stools uh, because of these laxatives that she needs. Cause so she's extreme. She's either looser stools or she's, she's constipated. Yeah. Uh, when someone has this and she mentioned being an opiate induced constipation, uh, which we, interesting that we started the show talking about opioids and now we're yeah. finishing it. This is a problem in our country. That's a, a bigger topic here. Um, but Specific to this, it's about finding that that Goldilocks principle, not too much, not too little. If you need some of these herbal remedies like senna leaf, um, some people use magnesium, some people use a little bit of vitamin C, some people use, you know, fermented foods. I think these things are fantastic, natural things that are non-addictive uh, and not, you know, habit forming that you can use to help with GI motility. Um, but it's not, you don't want to be swinging to the point where you're having loose stools and, you know, diarrhea for months on end, cause that isn't going to be good for the microbiome. It's just not going to be a healthy stool is a healthy stool, no matter if something pharmaceutical or something that's natural, that's causing diarrhea. Uh, it's not a good thing long-term for your microbiome. I get it. It's, it's when, cause I deal with patients that have constipation a lot and it is a juggling act of finding that right spot. And every day is a bit different. But you're going to have to, while the caveat is while you're actively healing the gut is, is number one. But number two, while you're actively healing the gut, you're going to have to find that dosage that's right. So have less of the senna leaf is basically what I'm saying. Have less, find that threshold where you have normal bowel movements, but you're not having looser stools. 
Uh, so that's what be my recommendation because it's not the best for your microbiome long term. Yeah. And Kristen, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater there. So uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't oh, resist. Man. <laughs> Mr. Dr. Pooptacular, all this yes. stuff, people are going to hate me. <laughs> Kristen, thank you for your question. And we are up to the iTunes reviews portion of the show. Uh, we had a kind of a, a constructive criticism one this week. So I like reading the good with the uh, these kind as well. I appreciate all of the science-backed info. I did not give it five stars because I'm disappointed with the inability to provide practical info so that people can apply this information into their life. Uh, in episode 123, a listener stated they didn't have time for meal prep. Uh, she worded things negatively. However, the only solution that was offered was don't be negative. Their response seemingly was judgmental and not very helpful. They didn't offer a practical tip. A tip. I encountered the same lack of practical advice when I wrote in to one of the speakers. I don't know if she's talking about you or me, but one of us uh, and asked for examples of meal ideas for a very strict 20 gram carb diet. The response was, sorry, we don't do that. Uh, I'm startled that they can be so heavy on the science, but shockingly fall short when it comes to simple practical application. Well, one of the highlights of this show, hallmarks of this show I think is where we translate some of the science into the practicality. And as you as a practitioner, you know, we try hard to do that. So we apologize, Lil Ebb, uh, that we didn't do that as well uh, for your liking. But I guess we can work on that a little more, Will, to be even more practical than we are now. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember that question. I, I mean, definitely my heart is not to be judgmental on somebody, but as a practitioner, sometimes you need to give somebody that is negative, which she, she you know, acknowledged that that person was kind of being negative too. Yeah. Sometimes you need to give them tough love to kind of recalibrate their perspective and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and definitely I get it. But, and then we all perceive things differently and we're all on different parts of our journey. That's not our intention at all to be impractical or judgmental, certainly. But thank you for the, she gave us four stars. Four stars. So it wasn't like she hates the show. It's just, (laughs) I guess that one, one episode kind of got in her crawl a little bit and it's all Mm -hmm. good. Uh, Again, we try our best. Uh, We're two human beings that are flawed in every way possible. (laughs) And we do our best to try to make this a fun show that does give very practical information. So uh, we appreciate your comment. And if you would like to leave us a review uh, and tell us all the things we do wrong. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) There's a lot of people that love this show. Uh, Go on over to Apple Podcasts, type in Keto Talk, Jimmy Moore, Will Cole. You will find the show and you too can leave us your review. That's it for this episode 146 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. Visit our website, ketotalk.com. You can get full show notes for this and every episode. And Will, I think it's next week is our last episode before we go away for a couple of months. Uh, while both of us have travel and you've got your new podcast, you're going to be recording some more episodes. Uh, so busy, busy time coming up here in the next couple of months. Yeah, I'm excited for it. It's going to be good, but we're not going away yet. So, nope. So, guys, until next Thursday, we'll see you then. You've been listening to Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. Visit our website, ketotalk.com, for full show notes for this episode. If you love Keto Talk, then drop us a review at iTunes. Thanks for joining us for today's episode, and we'll see you again next Thursday. Disc of Light.